Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with SCCM's immediate past president, Craig Coopersmith, MD, FACS, FCCM, about the new sepsis definitions. Dr. Coopersmith is a professor of surgery, as well as director of the surgical transplant ICU and associate director at Emory Center for Critical Care. He also serves as vice chair of the Department of Surgery at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. The sepsis definitions have been endorsed by more than 30 organizations worldwide that represent a spectrum of professionals who identify and manage sepsis from infectious disease professionals to emergency and critical care medicine practitioners and family practice caregivers. Dr. Cooper Smith is considered a leading expert in the field of sepsis, so we're happy to have him here to help break down these complex issues. Uh, welcome, Dr. Cooper Smith, and I know that this is a really large topic, but one that really needs to be discussed, and uh, hopefully uh, we can get you to make us a little bit more comfortable with this. Maybe what I could do, Dr. Cooper Smith, is to have you first go over um, the history of the previous definitions, uh, how those were arrived, how these were arrived, and talk about your goals in uh, making these latest revisions. Sure. So thank you for having me. This is an incredibly exciting time in the field of sepsis, and the new definition, I think, is a large step forward, and I'm honored to have been a part of it. The first definition of sepsis came out in 1992, and it was a consensus conference between the SCCM and the American College of Chest Physicians, and that's where we got the terms sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. And this was entirely a consensus-based document, a number of people uh, sitting around the table and coming up with best expert opinion. And that certainly moved the field forward over where it previously was, and it gave some structure to the concept of sepsis, and that was exciting. About 10 years later, in 2002, there was a uh, follow-up consensus conference which tried to improve upon the definition. And at that time, they were able to expand the list of diagnostic criteria for sepsis, but there were no actual changes in the definition because of lack of supporting evidence. And so, in effect, what we've had from the years 1992 to the year 2016, a 24-year period, is the same definition, which was entirely consensus-based. The new definition and the supporting documents, and there are a number behind it, actually come from a new approach. Part of this was, in fact, consensus definition of a task force of 18 people, which were appointed by the co-chairs, one of which was from SCCM and one of which was ESICM, based upon expertise in multiple different domains. But in addition to something which is new from last time is that this is data-driven. So instead of just people sitting around the room giving expert opinion, which is certainly important, they actually went to multiple different databases, both in the United States and out of the United States, multiple different types of healthcare system, private, federal, multiple different types of hospital, community academic, and ultimately came up with a number of new things which are now validated and evidence-based, uh, which is a different from the past when we hope a step forward. I'd like to ask Dr. Cooper Smith to define for us the new definitions for sepsis and to uh, explain to us what the goals were in constructing the new criteria with the third consensus 
meeting and actually what the overall goals of sepsis definitions are for you know, various members of the healthcare community. Sure. So the new definition is that sepsis is defined as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. There's a number of things which are implicit within the new definition that I'm going to get into. The first is that sepsis is defined as life-threatening. With this, we've actually changed the terminology. So previously, there was the terminology of sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. And in light of the fact that we believe that sepsis is life-threatening by definition, within the new definition, it always has a mortality of at least 10% or higher. We thought the term severe was redundant, and it was therefore removed. Uh, What was previously called severe sepsis is now called sepsis. What was previously called sepsis, which was not particularly life-threatening because there was no organ dysfunction associated with it, is now called infection. And it's certainly important to identify infection, but infection in and of itself is relatively rarely life-threatening, and sepsis, by definition, is life-threatening. The next part of it is that there has to be associated organ dysfunction. And within the definition, it doesn't specifically say how we look at organ dysfunction. And so we looked at a number of different ways of determining organ dysfunction and found that the best way of doing it is using the SOFA score, or Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score. This will be familiar to many people who work in the ICUs, but it's a scoring system using multiple different organ systems, including respiration, coagulation, liver, cardiovascular, central nervous system, and renal, and a score of two in any type of organ dysfunction counts as organ dysfunction in the new definition. Now, technically, this is two above baseline, The assumption is that everybody is going to start with a baseline of zero. If there's known, for instance, that somebody has organ dysfunction at baseline, then it will be two above that. Going on in the new definition, it talked about a dysregulated host response. So previously in the definition of sepsis was the term SIRS, or the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. And numerous studies came out that showed that SIRS was not particularly accurate in defining who is going to do badly from sepsis. And when we look specifically right now to see how well SIRS did in predicting who is going to have a bad outcome, it didn't do particularly well. The SOFA score did much better. And because of that, and because we don't want to make sepsis just about inflammation, and also because some of the things in the SIRS criteria can actually be adaptive. An elevated fever or an elevated white blood cell count can be adaptive. It was removed from the definition of sepsis. Again, this is not saying that SIRS has no utility. SIRS does have some utility in diagnosing infection. But the entire goal of the task force was saying who would do poorly. And so we specifically said who would have an elevated risk of death or who would have an elevated risk of being in the ICU for three days. It turns out when using those criteria, SIRS did not do so well, but the SOFA score did very well. Then we took it a step further and we said, how can we identify this? in the emergency room, or how can we identify this in the wards? Because very frequently, people are not going to be able to calculate SOFA in those places. It's fairly complicated and involves a lot of information. And this is where we came up with a new concept, something called quick SOFA or Q-SOFA, which is three simple tests. And those three simple tests, none of which require a blood test, are to look for an alteration in mental status, a decrease in systolic blood pressure of less than 100, 
or a respiratory rate of greater than 22. Anybody who has two out of three SOFAS points, that is, again, a change in mental status, a decrease in systolic blood pressure of less than 100, or an elevated respiratory rate, has a significantly higher risk of dying. QSOFA works very well in both the emergency department and wards in identifying somebody who is at risk of sepsis. The final thing that we looked at in the new definitions was a new definition of septic shock. So the previous definition of septic shock talked only about hypotension that was resistant to fluid resuscitation. And there was a recognition that shock is not just cardiovascular collapse. And to start with, we felt that septic shock is a subset of sepsis in which underlying circulatory and either cellular or metabolic abnormalities are profound enough to substantially increase mortality. Up front, I'll state that septic shock should not be treated any different from sepsis because both of them are associated with a significant risk of death. But we did think it was appropriate to say, is there a group of patients who are septic who have an even higher risk of death? And after doing a large database analysis, we came up with a new concept of septic shock, which involves both persistent hypotension requiring vasopressors to maintain a mean arterial blood pressure greater than 65 despite adequate fluid resuscitation and a blood lactate level of greater than or equal to two. These are both different than previously. There's now a specific mean arterial pressure that's listed for hypotension, and the requirement for lactate is also new, and compared to old studies from surviving sepsis where a lactate of four was listed, somewhat lower. And the reason these were used is in a database analysis. This showed a subgroup of patients with sepsis whose mortality was four times higher. If somebody has a mean arterial pressure of greater than 65 and a lactate level of greater than two, despite adequate fluid resuscitation, the mortality is approximately 40%. And so there's a number of new things in the definitions. What do we want the, the uh, clinician to get out of this? Well, first of all, we want everybody to recognize that sepsis is potentially life-threatening. It is no different or actually worse than an ST elevation MI or a stroke or a trauma. And every one of those clinicians would recognize is an immediately life-threatening situation. In fact, the mortality for sepsis is higher than each of them, and we understand that early treatment for sepsis decreases mortality. So we want people to understand that it's life-threatening. We want people to understand that it's associated with organ dysfunction and infections. We want people to understand that they should be specifically looking for organ dysfunction every time that they see somebody who they suspect infection of. And at the same time, everybody who they see organ failure they should also be looking for a potential infection. We also want to make it easier in both the wards and the emergency department to screen for somebody who might be sepsis, and the concept of QSOFA gives this to somebody. Very simple, three tests, which accounts for 75% of patients with deaths with sepsis. And finally, we wanted to have a new definition of septic shock that even though it won't change management, will be able to be used by the community to understand this is a risk, a much higher risk of death it sounds like a very uh, nice evolution of the uh, sepsis criteria, and it sounds very rigorous to have used data to arrive at these conclusions. So uh, thank you for that thorough explanation. I-, I think what I would like to do is actually just read to the audience the recommendations included in the paper. 
Okay. It, it says sepsis should be defined as life-threatening organ dysfunction due to a dysregulated host response to infection. For clinical operationalization, organ dysfunction can be represented by an increase in the sepsis-related organ failure assessment SOFA score greater than or equal to two points, which is associated with an in-hospital mortality of greater than 10%. Septic shock should be defined as a subset of sepsis in which particular profound circulatory, cellular, and metabolic abnormalities substantially increase mortality. Patients with septic shock can be clinically identified by a vasopressor requirement to maintain a mean arterial pressure greater than or equal to 65 millimeters of mercury and serum lactate greater than or equal to two micromolars per liter in the absence of hypovolemia. This combination is associated with hospital mortality rates greater than 40%. In pre-hospital, emergency department, or hospital settings, a rapid evaluation of adult patients with suspected infection demonstrating the presence of at least two of the following, respiratory rate greater than or equal to 22 breaths per minute, ultra-dementation or systolic blood pressure less than or equal to 100 millimeters of mercury that together constitute new clinical criteria termed quick sofa also QSOFA, identifies patients most likely to have the poor outcomes typical of sepsis. And that, you will note, is exactly what Dr. Cooper-Smith just uh, said. Now, some follow-up questions to that for you. For, for one, the QSOFA, it, it sounds like it actually has really nice correlation with uh, sepsis, and that's why you are encouraging us to adapt it for evaluation of non-ICU patients. Why is it that they are not applicable to the ICU population of patients? It's not that it's not applicable in ICU patients. It's just that it is not as strong a correlation. And the reason is because of what we do to patients in the intensive care unit. So quick sofa involves a respiratory rate of greater than 22. But if we put somebody on mechanical ventilation and we ventilate them with a lower level, they wouldn't necessarily have that. Quick sofa has a systolic blood pressure of less than 100. But if we put somebody on uh, vasopressors, they might have that higher blood pressure. And so it's not that it's not accurate. It's just that it's more accurate before we start doing all the things that we can do to patients in the intensive care unit. Sounds great. And in terms of the... Uh measurement of lactate as one of the criteria for a septic shock. What about institutions or you know healthcare networks that have not adapted that as a common lab test? Yeah, so this is an incredibly important question. And so there's two reasons why healthcare systems don't do lactate right now. One is that they choose not to, and one is that they don't have the capacity to. For hospital systems that choose not to, we believe that it's incredibly important to actually do so because there's significant value in measuring lactate. It's shown in the sepsis definitions and it's also recommended by the surviving sepsis campaign within the bundles. So if one has the capacity to measure lactate, one should. At the same time, we recognize that there are multiple healthcare systems, both in the developed and the developing world, that do not have the capacity to measure lactate. And in that circumstance, we recognize that this doesn't mean the definitions are invalid. It means that we do the best with what we have. In some place that doesn't have the capacity to measure lactate, septic shock would simply be looked at by blood pressure without looking at lactate at the same time. It's very important to mention that when we came up with these new definitions and all the subset analyses, that we actually did involve people from across the world in fact, we're very proud of the fact that the guidelines and definitions were endorsed 
by over 30 organizations across the entire world, including every single continent that people live in. The only one, of course, not being endorsing would be Antarctica. And we paid very close attention to what it will be like in different countries, in different healthcare systems, because we don't want this to be something that just works for academic healthcare systems in certain very privileged parts of the world. We want to make sure that this works across the entire world. And so if you have the capacity to measure everything, you should. And if you don't, many things listed within here can be done anywhere. Blood pressure can be done anywhere. QSOFA can be done anywhere. And we hope that sometime in the future that people will be able to measure lactate, but it's certainly not a deal breaker right now. We want this to be as inclusive as possible. And it was incredibly valuable for us to get the insights from the 30 endorsing organizations, not just endorsing it, but all who had a chance to peer review this beforehand to say, but what about this point of view you might have missed? And so it really strengthened the final product. Thank you for that elaboration. I think that it's really important for us to remember, as you mentioned, that sepsis is such a major healthcare problem, and the SCCM has done an incredible job with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign to really try to emphasize that, that it's a major cause of mortality for people, and these guidelines are going to help us take care of these patients and also to study them in further studies. That is actually what I wanted to ask you about next. I wanted to ask you about the potential impact of these new definitions of sepsis on the various areas of medicine that deal with septic patients. And those would be the areas of clinical care, clinical research, quality improvement, and economics. Uh, maybe I could ask you about your feelings about how this rollout of the new definitions would impact those various areas. Sure. So it's incredibly important to recognize that there is no such thing as a perfect definition. And one important message we need to get out to our colleagues in the sepsis community is that one size does not fit all. When one is looking at a definition, one can look at what's best for clinical care, what's best for research, and research could either be clinical or basic science, what's best for surveillance, and what's best for quality improvement and audit. And in fact, if one looks at what's best for all of those, it wouldn't necessarily be the same. For instance, for clinical care, what we want is something that is immediately available to the clinician at the bedside. This is where something like QSOFA would be incredibly important. Three very simple things that we can do easily at the bedside. When one is looking at surveillance, this is something which is done retrospectively and something which optimally would be done through the electronic medical record. So this is something that you would want to make sure that no matter what healthcare system you'd be in, you'd be able to get the information. And some of the things in QSOFA, for instance, altered mental status, might be a little bit more challenging, as might be respiratory rate, because unfortunately many people enter the respiratory rate inadequately in the chart. Then there's also currently CMS measures currently looking at sepsis, the SCT1 measure, and that's looking at the current existing severe sepsis, but it's defined in a patient who already has an ICD-9 or ICD-10 code demonstrating sepsis. And so it's important to mention that, A, we recognize that there's more than one type of improvement effort going on in sepsis right now, and, B, that the different ways we have of looking at it are not conflicting with each other. They're complementary for each other. So 
right now our new definition is something which is very clearly intended to be used at the bedside by a clinician. What CMS is using to audit things is going to be different. The CDC is talking eventually about doing bedside surveillance. That would be different. And what once somebody does to enter somebody into a research trial would also be different. They'd be complementary, but when one looks at the most important criteria for each one of them, they don't have to be the same. And we do not want there to be confusion in the field. What we've just come up with is dominantly something for the clinical practitioner. It does not obviate or say there's any problem with the other pieces that are out there in current sepsis management right now and a sepsis surveillance and a sepsis QI. Each one of them has strengths and each one of them has strengths that are designed for what they're intended for. It actually sounds like the definitions would make it easier for the bedside clinician to, for example, evaluate patients on the floor. I personally look forward to seeing how this will change the way people practice. What about those of us who have anxiety about ICD-10? Do you feel like this will change the way we code diagnoses in ICD-10? Well, it's going to be challenging for a while until everybody uses the same terminology, but to some degree it won't. The big thing right now for ICD-10 is you can code for sepsis, you can code for severe sepsis, or you can code for septic shock. Septic shock will be fairly similar to what it was before, although there's a new addition of lactate. Typically what people think of septic shock, although it's, I would say, more clearly defined right now, will be fairly different. What people currently code for severe sepsis, we are now terminating sepsis. Having said that, I think people will able be able to make the mental leap that the reason we've gotten rid of the term severe is that it's redundant. We understand that by definition, sepsis is a potentially life-threatening event. And so when we code it, we still have to use the term severe because that was from the previous definition. But I don't think it will be that much challenge. We'll still break it into sort of, instead of having three buckets in our head, sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock, we'll really have two buckets in our head, sepsis, which previously was severe sepsis, and septic shock. And I'm confident that my colleagues in the sepsis community will be able to make this distinction without much of a difficulty, and this will help us at the bedside and won't harm us in our ICD-10 billing. Right. Well, I think a lot of this has been a very practical conversation about the way the new sepsis criteria will affect the clinician. Do you have other takeaways that you would like the practice clinicians listening to know about the new criteria? Practically, I've said what I want to say, but at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that this is a future-looking document as well as a current-looking document. The name of the main sepsis paper is the Third International Consensus Definitions for Sepsis and Septic Shock, parentheses, sepsis 3. We're very clear in understanding that this is not sepsis final. We've learned so much from 1992 and from 2001 that it was appropriate to come up with a new definition and come up with new criteria and use large data sets to do so. At the same time, in one of my other lives, I'm a basic science researcher, and I understand that there's so much more to understand about the pathobiology of sepsis, and there's more that we're going to understand at the bedside. 
And everybody in the task force is well aware that sepsis 3 is not going to be sepsis final, that there will be a sepsis 4, that there hopefully will be a sepsis 5. Much like in psychiatry, there's a DSM-2 and there's a DSM-3, and things evolve over time as we get a better understanding. Ultimately, our goal is to move towards precision medicine, and ultimately our goal is to understand things on a biological basis, that we really have biomarkers that can identify people before they get sick or just as they're starting to get sick, and that we have more accurate ways of doing so than organ failure. Certainly by the time somebody gets organ failure, they run the risk of dying. And the goal is in the future, we can come up with, or we can figure out what will predict organ failure before it happens. And we can, on a much more biological basis, understand the disease and target the disease. And so today, we believe that sepsis 3 is the best that we can do, and we're very proud of the effort. With a full acknowledgement that we hope and that we expect that 10 years from now, there'll be a sepsis 4, and sepsis 4 will be an iterative basis upon sepsis 3, but better, just as we believe sepsis 3 is an advance over sepsis 1 and sepsis 2. Well, I will get you to uh, put your research hat on and uh, tell us what you think the takeaway points are for the third consensus definitions for the research folks out there. For the research folks, I think this is very important for clinical trials. If one looks at clinical trials of sepsis over the last number of years, one will see a widely, widely varying mortality. Some studies will have mortalities as low as 15%. Some studies will have mortalities as high as 40 to 50%. And you would say, how is that possible if sepsis is sepsis? In actuality, what this is saying is we have different patient populations that we're enrolling, not just that certain people are significantly better at clinical care than others. And so pragmatically, this gives us a guide. If we want to say we're enrolling patients with septic shock, we have a clear definition of what septic shock is. If we want to enroll patients with sepsis, we have a clear definition of what sepsis is. And the hope is that we will be able to more closely align our clinical uh, trials, no matter where they're done in the world, to come up with clear-cut numbers about what mortality is and other important endpoints. And so when we look to see, in perspective, randomized trials, are we able to improve the primary outcome of point? It's important to have something that everybody can point to. We're using the same definition. So wearing a clinical research hat, I think it's um, it, this will get us to homogeneity, which is going to benefit patients. From a basic science standpoint, I think it's important how little is in the room. So we had a number of the people on the task force who are experts in basic science, and when we started the consensus conference, we actually were talking about things like lymphocyte apoptosis, and we were talking about specific coagulation deficits and specific abnormalities in the gastrointestinal epithelium. And none of those ultimately made it into the definitions because none of those would be useful today in real time to a clinician. And so I think wearing the basic science hat is exciting because this helps somebody at the bedside. And it also is a call to action to say nothing that we've done at the bench has been able to make it into the clinical definition. And let's get figuring out a way that we can actually take the bench bedside we do, bench research we do, and figure out a way that in sepsis 4, 
there's some more actual basic biology in it as well that can be utilized at the bedside. Sounds very exciting. Well, Dr. Cooper-Smith, thank you so much for that. I want to remind uh, all the listeners out there that a lot of these data that have been analyzed to come up with the third international consensus definition are uh, being published right now in journals like Critical Care Medicine as well as JAMA. So look for those, and the upcoming Critical Care Congress will have various sessions, including a late-breaking session, about this. So it's definitely a very exciting time for the rollout, and uh, I am so grateful to Dr. Cooper-Smith for being here to help us learn just a little bit more about it. This concludes yet another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Ludwig Len MD is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit All Debates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.